0: Chopin and Bach, for me, are the two most romantic composers that there are. It it drives me crazy to the point of rage when people try and say that Bach was not romantic. He's some dry, academic, clinical, sterile composer, and nothing could be further from the truth. You're listening to The Gould Standard, episode 43, James Rhodes. Music is vitamin C.
1: Today, friends, we are happy to welcome a dear friend of the Glenn Gould Foundation, pianist, writer, and broadcaster James Rhodes. To my way of thinking, James is one of the greatest advocates for classical music in the world today, both with his incredibly expressive piano performances, but also his books and his TV work, in which he combines a unique ability to go from the most raw and traumatic subjects to shifting to convulsively funny moments almost instantaneously. As a pianist, he's concertized around the world and has recorded nine albums with provocative titles like Bullets and Lullabies, "Razor Blades and Little Pills, and Now Would All Freudians Please Stand Aside, along with the newest, a gorgeous collection of works primarily by Chopin, with a soup song of Bach on the side, again with a very interesting title of Vitamin C. James's books include Instrumental, A Memoir of Madness, Medication and Music, Fire on All Sides, Playlist, How to Play the Piano, and most recently, Made in Spain. Not only do we love James Rhodes for his courage, humor, and artistry, but also the fact that he's a Died in the wool Glenn Gould fan, and we had the pleasure of working with him on a BBC radio documentary about Gould that he created in 2017 as a tribute for Gould's 85th birth anniversary and also Canada's sesquicentennial. And we had the even greater delight of presenting James's Canadian concert debut in Toronto on March the 5th, 2020, literally just days before the world shut down because of COVID. And he was, of course, the initial inspiration for our own music and mental health online resource for teens, appropriately called Instrumental as a tribute to his own memoir. It's such a great pleasure to welcome back a great friend and an extraordinary artist. James, thank you so much for joining us. (laughs) <laughs> Brian, what an introduction. Thank you. Well, it's great to see you again. Uh, let's, let's plunge right in with the new album. I had a chance to listen to it. It's beautiful. Um, thank you. Uh, what led to your programming choices and, uh, the idea of combining a mostly Chopin with a bit of Bach? Where did the idea for, for that come from?
0: It's such a, it's such a luxury being a musician, isn't it? When you, when you think of the amount, the sheer, sheer amount of choice you have and which pieces to learn, to record, to perform. And for this album, I really wanted to... The album cover is a photo of me aged 18 months with my chubby little cheeks and my, my little smile and my slightly insane 70s style. And this album for me, is it's kind of a nod to that little boy who at such a young age was so influenced by classical music and so inspired by it. I wanted to record some of the pieces that really, really had a powerful impact in my life, that I would listen to, I don't know, Ashkenazi or Glenn Gould or Horowitz or Brendel play when I was eight or nine or 10 or 12 years old, absolutely in awe. And and now suddenly I'm playing them myself. And they're pieces that have inspired me that, um and for me, are, are deeply romantic. That's why I added Bach too, because... Chopin and Bach for me are, are the two most romantic composers that there are. It, it drives me crazy to the point of rage when, when people try and say that Bach was not romantic. He, he's some dry academic, clinical, sterile composer and nothing could be further from the truth.
1: Absolutely. I mean, the, the passion is there in every bar, whether it is romantic passion, like, you know, Little Bach, a book for Anna Magdalena or uh, his his sacred works it's you know, there's just love in every in every measure there's love and
0: there's also i mean th- this guy was like a baroque keith richards man he was shagging everyone he was getting arrested he was having fights he was getting drunk he was having duels. he was sleeping with groupies and the organ loft he had 21 children half of them died his wife died his parents died like everyone died and I'm sorry, man, but if you have that level of grief and pain and you're lucky enough to be to have a creative outlook for it, y- you're going to use that. You have to. Otherwise, you're just not going to survive. And, and he not only survived, he, he thrived. And for me, he did that because he had the music in which to... Actually, that album you mentioned, and now would all Freudians please stand aside, is a gold quote. Um where he was talking about, you know, maybe we ascribe too much to composers' past based on their biographies. But I think, and now, you know, would all Freudians please stand aside, Bach really was a terribly romantic man, and, and it was his way of dealing with the kind of hell that life threw it. And, of course,
1: he, he lived in times that we can scarcely imagine where the infant mortality rate was colossal off the charts and there were wars. And if the crop failed, a third of the population would starve it. These were not... I mean, Brian, I
0: got to say, yes, of course. I would also say that we live in times right now that in the future, people are going to look at and think, oh, I cannot imagine what it was like living in that hell that was 22. No, really, economically, environmentally, politically, socially... I mean, sure, there have been advances, but, you know, turn on the news today and ask yourself, really, what world are we living in? But I prefer not to think too much about that, or I, I won't get out yeah, of Yeah, it's true.
1: Me. But one thing's for sure, those good old days were may have been old, but they were probably none too good. And that's true <laughs> that's when true. these days become the good old days, too. I just think, I can't
0: help feeling, Brian, that we have a, you and me are the first generation who have made this planet worse for the upcoming generation the first generation in history to have done that our whole point as human beings is to improve things for our children and to make things better we have done the opposite and not only have we done the opposite we we haven't then gone oh i'm so sorry we've gone ah kids today what do they know they know nothing bloody and i just think oh my god it's like We've ruined it for everyone. I would not want to be a teenager today for all the money in the world. Yeah. It must be brutal living like that, that level of stress, knowing what's coming up. And I mean, it's a shocking state of affairs, I've got to say.
1: Well, if they're really upset at us, then they're smarter than we are. They are all smarter than we
0: are. That's a given. Uh, yeah.
1: Because, you know, not only do are we doing terribly irresponsible things on a planetary scale, but well, we seem to be... Feel perfectly good about it. You know, we seem to, to have. We boast about it. Yes. We
0: brag about it. We look at my pride at Jet. Look at my, and not only on, on, on the grand scale, let's take something that's perhaps slightly less kind of serious in a lot of people's eyes. Music education, for example. I mean, when I was a kid, when you were a kid, everyone played an instrument. There was a school orchestra. You went on trips to the symphony. It doesn't matter if your parents had money or not. It was part of life. Now, I mean, it's become this kind of dubious luxury for, for wealthy families who are able to shell out 70 or 80 bucks a week so that their kids can have cello and violin and piano lessons. And it's disappeared. That's something else that I feel. But, you know, kids are invisible to politicians. They don't vote. They don't pay taxes. It's like, why should they have nice things? And we've got it all backwards. We've got it all terribly terribly wrong um, and we can't admit it and i i just want to apologize to anyone under the age of 21 who's listening and go i am so sorry this was certainly not my intention and let's try and do what we can in our own
1: small way to to improve things a little. absolutely and kids when you take over and you're in charge if you can't forgive us please at least don't come for us well, actually, I don't know, I man. I think they would be absolutely well, maybe, but right. you know, one, one can hope for a little mercy, even if it's uh, yeah. well, it reminds me of um, one of my favorite lines of all time, a famous line from uh, a Marx Brothers movie where Groucho Marx has a, a romantic rival for the wealthy heiress, and of course, they're both interested in her money, played by Margaret Dumont. And eventually, the rivalry breaks into a fist fight, and Margaret Dumont at that moment enters the room and says, Mr. Firefly, what are you doing? And in mid blow, Groucho turns over around and says, I'm fighting for your honor, which is more than you ever did. That's about right. Let's hope that uh, that even though even though we haven't shown the level of justice and mercy that we should, that we we may receive some just as a gift. Actually I honestly don't
0: think we deserve it. I look at the world and I think we've just this is why we can't have nice things, yeah. right? Like, yeah we've ruined it. We've ruined it. Completely for everyone. So, and, and we deserve everything that's coming to well, us. Well, on, on that cheery note. <laughs> <laughs> but this is why, this is why I have to find small slivers of light in daily life in order to actually have a decent life, whether it's playing the piano, which I'm lucky enough to do, or, or taking photographs or having a Delightful puppy, or being married to the greatest woman, or what, these are the things I I grab onto like a life draft to think, my God, thank God I have these things, and none of them are, are material. They're all kind of very, they nurture me,
1: right? And and you've just enumerated about five subjects that are on my list of things to ask you about, but but let, let's not dogs. leave the album. Well, dogs, <laughs> dogs, and life partners, and and uh, just. Being a bit of a flaneur, because I know you're a prodigious walker, um, and enjoying just getting out and about and seeing the world around you. But but let's not leave the album, because it deserves some special attention. And out of the album, you have a, a live performing career, and you have a recording career. How do you contrast the experience? What are the special joys and challenges of each
0: it's a great question. I gotta say on balance, I prefer live. I think there's something very special about it. I always try and make concerts the most intimate and immersive thing possible. It's why I talk to the audience. It's why I get rid of all the lights and make it something for me, very kind of intimate. Um, give a bit of context and, and then perform the pieces. And nobody has program notes they're reading while you're playing the thing. It, that drives me crazy. Um, I love this idea that for an hour and a half, we're in a dark room, whether it's a couple of thousand people or whatever, listening to some composer who was out of his mind with grief 300 years ago, talking to us today. And this moment is never going to be repeated. It's just a one-off, a little cosmic blip that we can just enjoy. It goes back to what we were talking about earlier. In this life, we have to find these small little moments, don't we, that somehow balance the absolute hell that is going on outside. And actually the concert hall is pretty much the last place on earth we can do that. You, you have mobile phones now on airplanes and you hear people talking, you have Tinder and, and the X factor and news and, and publicity and adverts and, and, and offensive photos being sent on Twitter and, and trolls and there's just noise everywhere of the worst kind. And suddenly you're in a concert hall. And yeah, true, there's normally a couple of mobiles going off. But as a rule, it is the last kind of safe place we have where we can just close our eyes and disappear. And we don't have to think like, oh, I, I have to meditate now. And it does it all for you. It's like I always think I provide or Bath provides the soundtrack and you guys make up the movie in your head. And it's something that is kind of sacred but without the pomposity of, you know, even though a lot of people in the classical industry want that pomposity, it doesn't have that kind of strict pompous. We're going to mass now in a church and there are all these rules. It It's just a beautiful, warm place to be. So of course, albums are terrific because you can stop and have a, have a Mars bar or have a cigarette and a cup of coffee outside and you have another go. if It doesn't really work out the first time. And, um, it's a wonderful experience. I love, yeah. I love that experience, but I'm, it's one of the few things that I differ with Glenn Gould about, which is, you know, he, he talked about the, the womb-like security, <laughs> the recording studio, <laughs> talking about Dr. Freud. My God. Um, uh, for me, it, it, you know, it's a wonderful thing, but it's, it's very different.
1: Right. Right. And I do have to say you, you touched on a point that, that is very important, very precious to me. And it's, Gets back also to young people who have been raised in, let's say the, not just the internet age, but the cell phone age, where there is this continuous stream of what I would call interrupting inputs and messages that really destroys the ability to focus and concentrate. And, you know, there's, of course, for generations, people have talked about diminishing attention span. You know, that's not the fault of, of the people who experience it. It's, it's something that's being done to them. And one of the things that I think is most important about music is, you know, something that even this is being compromised by. There's so much that we have going on in our lives that, you know, more and more people listen to music in the background. They listen to it in restaurants while they eat. It just becomes an a nuisance, an annoyance. The ability to listen in an intense, focused way that makes essentially everything else go away except that music. Is I think not only one of the most precious aspects about music, that ability to basically, you know, make the world leave, but also it's one of the most therapeutic aspects of music because I think we've all had the experience and perhaps you, you know, more than any of these repeated psych- cyclical thoughts that can be negative and just dis- and damaging. And to find those moments in which you can just basically turn them off. But I think that's
0: kind of our responsibility as musicians to do that. I don't think that's the responsibility of the audience. Honestly, I find that the audience so often in our industry, and I talk about music in general, not just classical music, is treated with so much disdain and contempt. It, there's this idea that you will pay a stratospheric amount for a concert ticket. You will then pay p- fees on top of that for the honor of being able to attend this concert and you will pay for merchandise and you will get there and you have to adhere to all of these rules about when to applaud and what to wear and when to sit and how to be quiet. And it's just, for me, the music and the audience have to be kind of at the same level when it comes to respect and, 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 and consideration. And I, I can't help feeling that if someone is kind enough to spend 30 euros or 40 euros or 50 euros on a concert ticket to come and hear me play. My job is not, you know, I go to concerts sometimes and it's like the guy just walks out on stage, barely acknowledges the audience, quick bow, sits down, he plays, gets up, bows and leaves. And I just think I've just paid 60 euros. Like I would, I could have sat at home and listened to Spotify for an hour and felt more relaxed and I just feel well. What if I could see Kissen or Sokolov or Zimmerman or Argerich spend a couple of minutes saying, "I'm going to play this Bach partita for you," and the reason I'm going to play it is this: and Bach composed it at this time, and why it's so special to me is, and the challenges of performing it. This is just to give me something. And then suddenly, the whole thing changes. It's like, firstly, they're acknowledging the audience. They're including the audience. Secondly, it gives a very important context, and it personalizes it. And then suddenly, you're there on this journey all together, listening to something, almost as as if for the first time.
1: I think that's something that we really need to encourage more of, no? So we need to be better at welcoming and hospitality, for one
0: thing. Well, I think we need to stop thinking that musicians, just because they're on stage, somehow ba- valued more highly than right. the people attending the concert. Right. Nothing could be further from the truth. Just because we we play an instrument, I mean, it doesn't
1: mean we're any better at any level than anyone right. else. Exactly. It's like, relax. So, down with the class system, we're together in this endeavor. We're, of yeah. course. I mean, if there's one thing that... Should not and and actually doesn't
0: in its purest form of any kind of class system. It, it's music. Of course it is. Since the dawn of time, I mean, it, it is the answer to everything and universally acknowledged to be the great leveler. It belongs to everyone. And yet, it's like I, I mean, the looks I get wearing jeans at a concert or applauding because. The cadenza is so amazing, and they go, no, you must wait till the end of the whole concerto. I know all about classical music, because I was born in 1932 in Berlin, and I just think, my God, these people, like, no,
1: just stop. Well, stop. It, not only that, but that particular pretension is also historically incorrect, you know, in Beethoven. Of in, in oh my God, in their time... It was brutal. In Beethoven's time, yes, people would talk and they would make their feelings known. And they would applaud between each movement of his symphonies. And if the applause was good enough, he would go and give an encore of that movement before moving on to the next movement. And his concerts would last four bloody
0: hours in the freezing cold. And it's like, we've got it really pretty good
1: in this day and age, as far as that's concerned. So, first of all, you're now living in spain and you've written a book about making the transition from being a brit to not not hopefully one of those sort of semi-retired people who go off uh, and get the you know fish
0: and chips at a spanish restaurant and they don't they've been there for 20 years and they don't speak a word of spanish and...
1: Right, right now you're 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 becoming properly what's the word for sp- Spanified, Spanishified, espanolized. Uh, um, <laughs> anyway, um. I am actually officially
0: Spanish now. I have my passport and my nationality, and I've had to reject my British nationality because you can't have dual citizenship, um, England and Spain. And honestly, after since Brexit, I think in general you've never been able to. But since Brexit, it, it, it's just—I mean, there has never been an easier or more rapid decision on my part than to wave goodbye to everything. Great Britain stands for. And, um, and I say that with all the respect for the Commonwealth that you are a part of, proudly or not, it's not for me to judge. But all I can say is in after London, it's a, it's like Disneyland in Madrid.
1: I want to get into that, but that's part of a, a larger continuum of your life story. And I don't want to go over, you know, because you've told the story of your life many times. And I, 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 if I'm not, Reading too much and, you know, like you, you want to move on from the, 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 horrible early life experiences that you related in, in instrumental and, and also, you know, sort of continued in, in fire on all sides. But if you don't mind, just for those few people listening who don't know you already, may I, may I do? Feel free. Say whatever you like. Yeah. James, as a very young boy, went to a, a highly respected private school, or I guess it would be called a public school uh, in the UK, and almost immediately became a victim of a predatory, was it boxing master, who sexually abused him. And and James is very free and open about not wanting to use euphemisms. He says raped him repeatedly, inflicting unbelievably psychic and uh, horrible psychic and physical harms to him. That basically left him in a, a pretty horrible state that persisted for many, many years after. And in instrumental, he tells the story of his gradual, furtive first steps towards, I don't even want to use the word recovery to, to learning to, to live again and to cope and to find life on the other side of that horror and the role that music played in that process. And it's a, a beautiful, as well as horrifying as well as often hilariously funny uh, memoir, and so if you haven 't read it, go get it, read it and What I especially liked about Fire on All Sides," which is kind of a year of your concert life after you 'd sort of gotten over that initial hump, is that it first of all, you have an uncanny ability to to bring people inside your head and share what you 're experiencing but also to make it clear that this is not a Pat happy ending story that like I discovered music and I started to play and I now have a career and everything's fine. You like, these are things that don't ever actually completely go away, but you find a way gradually of working through to ways to live, ways to find joy. Again, ways to, to cope ways to fight off the demons when they want to, to come back. Is that a, a fair Summation. If I've misrepresented, 100%. please. Yeah. No,
0: I think that's that's bang on. It's funny. Today I was playing. I'm building a new concert program, and one of the pieces I'm I'm performing is the the Polonaise Fantasy of Chopin, which is arguably his greatest work, along with the Fourth Ballade. Certainly one of the great last works he composed. And I was thinking about it when I was playing it. it it's effectively one long thirteen minute improvisation. That's what it sounds like. It sounds like it's an improvisation. And I was thinking while I was playing this and practicing it, it's so like you know, we all pretend we know what we're doing <laughs> and we have all the answers and we're adults and and actually we're just making it up as we go along, trying to keep some kind of mask on and and function. And I suppose, yeah, I I, I mean everything is a kind of wonderful slightly crazy improvisation with incredible harmonies and ups and downs and certainly in this piece there is every emotion known to man from absolute heroism to surrender and sadness and heartbreak and anger and joy and everything in between and it's kind of it's a lovely parallel for me about life so yeah I I think you're bang on it was a a, an awful childhood, like so many of us have had sadly I, I think it's a big error to try and quantify trauma I, I think we all experience trauma um certainly as children and, and oftentimes as adults and and then recovery yes yeah, through through music and love and uh, moving countries and and it's it's quite funny in a way because it, it's kind of come full circle it, it started out so terribly and and although it was too late for me when i got to spain i had the opportunity to Work on a new child protection law here that after three and a half years of, of basically publicly shaming politicians until they were willing to step up and act and, and pass this new law, we have now got this law, which according to the United Nations makes Spain the number one country in the world now when it comes to child protection. So that for me, it's, I'm happy to talk about my past if there's a good reason for doing so. And, and the reason I did that here in Spain was in order to get this law passed. And now we've done that and it's an organic law. It's actually 12 different laws. It's changed everything. I can quite happily now not talk about it ever again <laughs> and just and talk about lovely things like music and love and, you know, target achieved. And, and it's quite a nice way
1: to kind of put that to bed in a way. Exactly. Except, of course, that all the other con- uh, countries in at least the, the developed world should be taking a cue from Spain and the work that you've done. By the way, it is referred to as James Rhodes Law. Uh, Which is a little bit silly, to be
0: honest with you, because there were an awful lot of people obviously involved in a lot of um, NGOs and Save the Children and a lot of... I did not ask for it to be given my name and and i wasn't consulted about well
1: but it it, but but it's nice it's an honor it's a nice and it's a lovely thing and the fact is that that associating with someone who has a a public face can help people to become more aware of it so it has a communication it has a practical value yeah don't forget
0: of course spain is an extremely catholic country with an extremely powerful church um, which is Arguably, the greatest abuser of children in the history of the world, the catholic church and so in effect, you're not really battling politicians, you're battling this immense hierarchy of power and silence and denial that is the Catholic Church and in an extremely Catholic country and that that was a, obviously a, a big hurdle to get through
1: well that's uh, kind of a an image that I have of Spain, a country that is um extraordinarily progressive and also at the same time has some extraordinarily regressive elements basically holdovers from the the, again good old days of uh of the generalissimo and i don't know to what extent those regressive elements are still in the fore um but it has honestly brian
0: it's been incredible the experience shocking to me i I was so naive when I got here. And I don't think this is unique to Spain at all. I have to say right off the bat, I think this is a global issue. But I got here and I thought, oh, this is great. I had the president call me and say, come to parliament and let's talk about the law. And because I'd written an open letter in El Pais and he invited me because he had to. And afterwards, I thought I had a photo with him and I thought, oh, this is great. And I was remember tweeting like, guys, this is awesome. There's a new law to protect our children here. And um and sanchez the president has promised he's gonna do it and and i was such an idiot i i thought the response would be oh fantastic man how can we help what do you need let's let's get this done and and the response was like get back to your country leave our kids alone you left-wing communist liberal snowflake and, and i was just like absolutely wait uh, what like children. We're, we're talking about children. We're not talking about taxes. or And sadly, that's a thing now that everything is polarized to the extent that you can try and, I mean, I, I can donate money to a food bank and be threatened with deportation for daring to do it. It's like somehow we've become part of a society where my political opinions are basically, I, I just want people to effectively not die ahead of their time and and have what they need to live a a dignified life and and for people to pay taxes you radical you you radical (laughs) and it's not particularly like barbaric or controversial and yet somehow it's i i just that's i just don't understand the world and and the quantity i mean death threats and bomb threats and campaigns on twitter to and, and members of parliament literally trying to deport me and revoke my nationality and saying I had the face of a rapist more than a victim of rape. And these are politicians, like it just, and the press, the right and the left. And I don't know what it's like in Canada. I assume it's kind of similar, the right and left and very, it's all super heated. And it's just, and I'm not either. I don't think I'm really either right or left. I just, I believe in kind of basic. Decency.
1: Yeah, that's uh, that's uh, very provocative. Decency. It's we, very we, confusing, <laughs> Brad. I just well, oh. well, well, I'm I'm so sorry to hear that. I, I I had no idea that you had been subjected to that. But it is kind of a picture of the times we live in. That there is this polarization. It's not. Quite that bad in Canada, although I, I don't spend a lot of time on social media personally. Um, so that's a, a place where a lot of that tends to run rampant. And I'm sure it's that part is as bad because there, there are no costs to saying and doing irresponsible things, or for that matter, unleashing armies of bots to do, you know, ir- in fact, there's a, there's a surprising
0: benefit to it. It would seem and rather than there being a cost, there's absolutely you're encouraged. And I've fallen for it too. That's the worst thing about this. The insidiousness of social media is that I, without thinking in the past, have have written about somebody I've never met, I've never had any personal experience with, but I've seen something attributed to him or written about him. And I go, I cannot believe this monster shame on you. You have been judged. And I just think, oh, I I don't want to be like that. Like, it's one thing if you meet someone and they're just insufferable and they talk to you in a way that's completely like without boundaries and horrific to then have an informed opinion, and say, actually, this guy is really does not live with any kind of values that I respect. That's one thing. But to just judge and cancel and boom, that's it. It's just, I don't want to be like that. That's why I have a, a real issue now with social media.
1: Yeah. And and I, I have to say that, and hopefully this isn't controversial, but I think that Even people that you uh, have very little in common with, there may be a few things that you do share, and at least those are areas in which you can begin to understand each other and you know agree to disagree on the things, even if they're things you disagree very strongly about. You know, we we have this tendency now to say, "Well, you know, I may agree with you on these three things, but there are five things that I disagree with you about." So, as far as I'm concerned, I never want to see your face again, and you are you are gone. As they say, you are dead to me.
0: Exactly. They did that thing. That they, the, the number one answer, I, I have been critical of the extreme right is what I would refer to it as. Not the right, the extreme right, the kind who kind of want to ban Islam from all of Europe and, and say all immigrants are rapists and you know the kind I'm talking about. And I have been critical about that in the past. And, and, and the number one answer to that are, are, are people from the extreme right who say, well, just because people think differently to you. You, you you just automatically write them off. And I think well thinking differently is kind of I don't it's a very strange way to put it. It's like you take your coffee black, I take mine white. That that's thinking differently. You you like a beach holiday, but I actually quite like a city break looking at museums. That it's like male violence against women doesn't exist and rapists provoke it. That that's not thinking differently. Like you're 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 unhinged. Like that's just, you're a monster and full stop. There's no discrepancy there. And, and so they say, they said to me, why don't you hang out with people who, who don't think the same as you and broaden your horizon? And so occasionally I've done that. I'll meet with someone who has certain beliefs and then they go on Twitter and they go, Oh, you're hanging out with a fascist. You're a monster. We can <laughs> it's like, you can't win. It's- it tri- it's just i know insane. i know
1: but on the other hand i don't think it's terribly productive for us to have to be at war with with each other either like to have civil war so there has to be some way around this problem and of course i i absolutely agree if you're talking about literal fascists and people who advocate horrendous violence and who are in denial about really horrendous crime against women or children or whatever yes i have nothing to say to people like that, nor nor should we. I'm talking about, obviously, a lesser degree of of disagreement. Because, again, I have many friends who are conservatives. I may be less conservative than them, but there are a few things that, that we agree on, and we can have a conversation. But uh, sometimes those conversations do get a little heated, I, I must confess.
0: They do, and I think it's fine to have conversations. I think we just, a bit like you mentioned earlier about the attention span and everything, I think as a society, in a way, we've almost lost that ability to just have a conversation. And instead of a conversation, what we get is we get half an opinion and then an absolute shutdown and and that's it. A nail in the coffin and walk on. And especially in social media, it's one of the reasons I've been so excited to help develop this this new social media app, which I, I hesitate even to call it a social media app, with the Daily News, because it it's such a wonderful answer to everything we've been talking about it you know you don't get sent dick pics there are no private messages there are no i am like buttons or it's just you can't see how many followers people have it's just it's a way to go inside read a paragraph about a wonderful painting by goya or a beautiful walt Walt whitman poem or some wonderful artistic thing and then reflect on it either privately or publicly read what other people have said there's no politics. There's no back and forth. There's no, well, you said this and I want to say no. It's just a way to feel slightly more educated and, and more conscious. And rather than feeling like you've opened a door to a thousand people throwing things at you, <laughs> it's a very gentle thing.
1: Exactly. Well, I want to get to the daily muse, but I'm not done with Spain and your books and your book about, about moving to Spain, and so on. So lest we leave our listeners with an incomplete picture of your relationship with Spain, because you've talked about some of the the more negative experiences you've had. But clearly, from reading your work and your thoughts, and the fact that you've transitioned online to writing almost entirely in Spanish, which is a really great achievement, Spain has been really good for you. And there are obviously things that are beautiful and soul nourishing about that transition. So why don't you tell me about the beautiful part of your Spanish experience? I would honestly, even
0: the difficult stuff has been beautiful with Spain. It has been the most, it's like this incredible marriage that you often read about or you see depicted in movies, but you can't quite believe it actually exists, where even though there are challenging things, it's actually the most extraordinary, powerful, profound, deeply loving relationship. That's my experience with Spain. I mean, I arrived here five and a half years ago with literally with with three suitcases. And I spoke, I think, four words of Spanish. And in one weekend, I found an apartment and a Steinway And I moved in with my now wife. And I had no friends at all. I didn't know anyone except my wife, nobody. And now I think I'm pretty much fluent in the language. I have this beautiful, bright apartment. I'm married to the woman of my dreams. I sleep. I can breathe. I haven't had to involve lawyers or had court cases. Or like living in London was, I mean, I, I'd been mugged eight times out of my phone, stolen and punched in the face in London. It's like the most normal thing in the world. Here, it doesn't even occur to people. not use their mobiles industry it's like the idea of something like that happening is so unknown in madrid especially it's just one of the most friendly open the culture shot as an english person i remember the first time i went to the doctor (laughs) i was sitting in the waiting room all these people waiting there elderly couple walk in smile they look at people and they go in spanish and they, they they go good morning and everyone goes, good morning. I was like, wait, what just happened? Like you try doing that in England. You go to a little NHS doctor, you're waiting and, and you come in and you say, oh, good morning. People would either stab you or they'll think you're high or suddenly they wouldn't make eye contact and say good morning to you. It's, the rhythm is slower. People are friendlier and more open. The language is so beautiful. The food is unbelievable. unbelievable. It's unbelievable. You spend 13 euros and in a typical little corner restaurant, family place for three courses, freshly made. It's divine. And, oh, I'm, I'm completely in love. I know that sounds a bit kind of rose tinted glasses, but I've seen the uglier side of it too. And I've experienced it personally. And yet despite all of that, I've come through the other side feeling more in love than ever with Spain. Are there problems? Of course. There's huge economic disparity and political issues and mental illness and terrible things with, with, with health and public health, music education. And and yeah, it's the greatest, greatest country I've ever had the fortune to visit.
1: Wow, that's uh, that's fantastic. It's beautiful. It, it reminds me of a group of uh, a family that um, that I had dinner with and they were visiting from Spain. And I said, Um, what do you think the biggest difference is? And he, they said, everyone here is so serious, and they never stop thinking about their jobs. Here, you live to work, and at home, we work to live, 100%. because our lives are more important.
0: Yeah, it's incredible to see the, the emphasis on families, the respect, almost reverence with which grandmothers are treated here. It's like... it's just, it's an incredible cultural thing. I mean, I i go to places sometimes at 10 o'clock at night, which is the time I'm usually in bed. I walk into the little square in the middle of the town and and people are starting to have dinner. Kids are running around. There's no mobiles. There's no kind of aggression. The kids are running around and playing and laughing. The parents are sitting on a terrace having something to eat. And it's just, and yet they work incredibly long hours. I don't know how they do. It's an incredible thing to see. It's just, it's a very beautifully balanced culture for me.
1: Another part of your, your new life is, as you mentioned, your marriage. And, uh, so that's working out beautifully.
0: Uh, She's Argentinian as well. Imagine an English kid and and an Argentinian. Like we can't talk about Maradona. We can't talk about the Falkland Islands. And like, so, and yet it's just, it's the most amazing. Experience and a great, honestly, a great way to learn Spanish. If you want to learn a new language, marry someone who
1: is native yeah, absolutely, <laughs> in absolutely. that language. By the way, as far as the Falklands are concerned, um, or the Malvinas, the answer is: you say we were wrong, and she says no, we were wrong, and then you shake hands. Very British, isn't it? <laughs> it reminds me of uh, one of my very favorite poems by the uh, the American humorous poet Ogden Nash, and it is called "A Word to Husbands." To keep your marriage flowing with love from the loving cup. Whenever you're wrong, admit it. Whenever you're right, shut up. Shut up.
0: Well, <laughs> <laughs> that, that works. That, like, that works, for, for, works, great that works for, me. for
1: wives too. I think that just being prepared to, to give and take. Um, all right. Um, I do want to transition to talking about the Daily Muse, but before we do, um, I did want to ask you about your newfound love of photography. I understand that that's a big new passion in your life. It's huge. I, I never used
0: to take photos. Um, and it's a, it's a thing of, about Spain in particular. When I got here after a few months, I suddenly had this moment and I thought, my God, they, I, I get paid to travel around one of the most beautiful countries in the world doing what I love, playing the piano. And what happened is that I was finding the schedule was so crazy. Everything would kind of merge into one. I wouldn't really be able to remember which city was which concert and. And I thought I should, I really should start taking photos so that I can remember. And I, I bought a camera and I've taught myself. And over the last five years, I've, I've become more and more kind of obsessed with it to the point now where I, I literally will not leave the house without a camera. And I, I don't mean right. a cell phone camera. I mean like a real camera, a, a real camera. I have a couple now. I have one that only shoots in black and white. And I have one that's a kind of normal digital one. And, and I just, I find it helps me kind of. Firstly it helps me notice what's going on around me rather than being caught up in my own world and my own thoughts and my own ego and secondly it's a very lovely way of kind of creating you know i, I don't have to deal with other people or work in a team i don't have to i can just do something for me and then edit them alone and then i have something that next year i think we're going to do an exhibition of beautiful, beautiful parts of Spain and street photography and architectural and landscapes and
1: portraits. It's a lovely thing to do. Uh, Well, I'm looking forward to the first book of your photographs. That will be delightful to see because uh, you are an exceptional writer and the commentary that goes along with the photographs, I think, would be very illuminating and insightful. Thank you, man. You know, I thought of
0: integrating it with concert. Like here's a piece of enough, like where you kind of envision him kind of walking through the tundra with a quart of vodka, depressed and like angry at the world. And and as I'm playing, there's a beautiful photo, of something kind of really atmospheric and then reminiscent of that for me. What that describes, and it's a kind of more immersive, more kind of expressive way.
1: Well, you know, if you want to start with an Albanith program, you know that might be a since you're doing a lot of your photography in Spain. But anyway, let's transition now to talk about the Daily Muse, because as you alluded, it is a a really beautiful app that anyone can uh, download and use. And uh, we're about to be joined by Elena. I, I can't pronounce the name, I think, the way she pronounces it, because I was brought up in a... A, a half francophone country so brian you're canadian you can pronounce
0: it if you can't pronounce it there's a problem
1: but i have a <laughs> feeling yeah but i but i have a feeling elena welcome by the way welcome welcome thank you elena is the developer of the app the daily muse and and how how do you pronounce it i don't want to to uh to force <laughs> frenchification i'm not sure
2: i honestly. <laughs> I think it, I, I go by yeah. Longchamp,
1: but that's probably... Delonchamp. Yeah. That's, that's pretty close. We we have um, a long tradition of Quebecers who migrated during the Depression to the New England states where they immediately became Anglified. So you have a, a lot of Benoits who call themselves mm. Benoit, And that one kind of... Ja- that one <laughs> jangles my nerves a little bit, I have to confess. Anyway, so welcome. Why don't the two of you together tell me the story of the Daily Muse and what you're hoping it will inspire in people and how you want it to be used and you know what the outcomes will ultimately be, we hope.
2: Well, I can start this one off because it started because two years ago, I was procrastinating writing an essay, actually. And I was watching one of James's TED Talks that he was giving. And it, he gave it a few years ago in 2016. But it was about Basically, he lamented the, cl- the inaccessibility of classical music to a younger population. And not only the inaccessibility of classical music, but also beauty as a whole. And in large part, that is a result of what's happening with current states of social media and technology. And it's, it's a pretty grim landscape out there right now. And that message really resonated with me, being a college student, having grown up around technology my entire life and seeing all my friends, you know, they don't understand classical music because they've never really been given a means to understand it. And so from that TED talk, I was inspired to write a business plan, a brief outline of an app that would, that hopefully rectified some of those issues. And then I ended up sending it to unknowingly James's manager, Denis, and they responded. I think
0: even in the talk, I even said, wouldn't it be wonderful if there was an app that helped us kind of go inside and focus on these beautiful things like these wonderful pieces of music or works of art and and then sure enough now here it is thanks to you we have this amazing art where instead of this world we live in where everything is about what's going on outside the kind of mirage of the perfect life we have to show the whole world just for five minutes or or seven minutes or ten minutes we can go inside and
1: and reflect on things and it's something that I think we really, really need. So uh, as a, a not terribly app or social media savvy person, if I download the Daily Muse, what do I experience and what does it invite me to do? Can, can you describe the, the user experience of the, of the app?
2: Basically, every day you receive a question and that question is centered around some form of art or beauty. So we pick a different painting or a cultural phenomenon or um, a piece of music. And then that question spurs uh, you to respond in fewer than 200 words. And then you either post that to the social feed or you can archive it in your personal responses.
1: So it can become something that you just do for yourself, like keeping a journal. Exactly. It can be a
0: private thing for you as a journal that you can then look back on in time if you want to. Or you can share it for other people to read, but importantly not for other people to then argue with you about or reply. It's just to help contribute a little bit. And and the lovely thing for me is that instead of just the question itself, the question is is preceded with a kind of beautiful paragraph or two about this work of art. With with things that I new information that I I would never have known about a, a Goya painting or or for example, and it's something that you I read it and I go, oh. God, I I feel like half a percent more intelligent than I did two minutes ago, and and then you can write something based on the the question, which is always a very kind of open
1: ended, beautiful question. It's a really it's a very special application, I think. And what's what I think is really wonderful about it is, in seeing how other people respond to a work of art, you first of all get a sense of the incredible range and diversity of human experience, you know, like look at what he found or she found in that poem or that painting or that photograph. I saw something completely different, but I can sort of see it. It's remarkable. And then, of course, you can reflect on how amazing art is, that it can basically be like a seed that so many different plants grow from. It uh, can give rise to so many different experiences and understandings and interpretation and wisdom. So basically, you have... uh, I think solve the problem of human misunderstanding and, and faulty communication all through the medium of art and a single app. It exactly. It Thank you, Elena. <laughs> you've, you've done that. I, I, hope that it's, it starts, it, it gets adopted at the United Nations because maybe we can find a little, a little more harmony. But no, seriously, I'm, I'm being facetious, but I think it, it's wonderful to consciously try to construct a social media experience whose impact will only be, and by design be, constructive, only be creative, only be, you know, as a a man who is a great inspiration to me, um, Dr. Jose Antonio Abreu, who won our Glenn Gould Prize and who founded El Sistema, the free music education program, and he described the orchestra as the only institution whose sole purpose is to be in harmony with itself. And I think that if I'm understanding correctly that's kind of the direction that you're hoping this will will move people in.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're we're trying to put all the the plans in place to make it a healthy platform because obviously a platform like Instagram although it has become toxic, it's not it doesn't call itself toxic. You know, we have to be very intentional about everything that we put out and make sure that we're trying to facilitate the most productive and positive experience that we can right. for our users.
0: One of the things I love about it the most is that so often these social media thing, networks, they, they, they give you this kind of false promise of never feeling alone, that you're part of a community. And actually, it's exactly the opposite. You feel completely alone and isolated, with, even though you're surrounded by millions of people. And yet with the Daily Muse, that, that's why I hesitate to call it a social network because it's almost like I do genuinely feel like we are part of a community that is not interested in being better than or being aggressive or controversial. Just, we just, we just want to nurture things and appreciate things. And and there's something really beautiful about realizing you're not alone in that. And also you can learn from other people by reading what they write as well.
2: In some ways, it remains impervious to. Um, Pure pressure because you're not able to read any other responses before you respond yourself. And I think that's so beautiful because when I respond to a question, a number of people have completely different takes on it or completely different experiences. And I'm not influenced by that and neither are they. So
1: really cool. And so you, you get basically the kaleidoscope without the pressure to kind of unify down to either a single stream of opinion or let's say, a bifurcated polarized stream of you know people shouting at each other from opposite sides of a of a gap. Yes. It's like nobody nobody wants to be
0: right on the daily news. On Twitter and Instagram, everyone wants to be right all the time, like or better than or and someone has to be wrong by, by inference. Like yet on the Daily News it's just it's the opposite of that. There's no need
1: to be right. And this of course is is brand new. Um it, it was launched how long ago? About four weeks. About four weeks. So this is a four-week-old baby. Welcome to the world, four-week-old baby, the Daily Muse. Have you been getting a a good uptake on it? Are people signing on and using it? Yeah,
2: I think probably the most impressive number that we have is retention because what we've found is that we're not Instagram yet, obviously. We have a few thousand good users, but um, what I'm excited about is how dedicated those users are. And we've acquired a number of people who use this religiously already and they've they've been incredibly devoted in a way that excites me more than the sheer amount of subscribers because it's one thing to have a ton of users but it's another to have really dedicated users who take it seriously and and have the quality that you know you want as an app developer
1: exactly well you know if any of those users are listening to this podcast Word of mouth is a very powerful tool. So tell your friends. And when I say tell your friends, I don't mean get out your phone and type something or text them. Pick up the phone and call them or have a coffee with them and show them because the idea of getting human beings actually really communicating with each other, I think is probably a good thing and very consistent with the values of this, of this project. You know, you may find that, uh, that, uh, you learn things about your friends or make new friends that you didn't have before as a result of, of doing that. So people can read about The Daily Muse on our website because we published an article on it uh, recently. So you, know, you can go to glengould.ca. But if they want to download the app themselves, how do they go about doing that?
2: Um, you can search it on the App Store or on our Instagram, thedailymuse.app. There's a link that takes you to the App Store, either Android or Apple.
1: And that should do it, right? And and if you if you do the latter, folks, get off of Instagram as quickly as possible afterwards, right? Uh, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, Elena, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Uh, you discovered the or came up with this idea, but you know this is a very precocious thing to be developing an app while you're you're an undergrad still, right? You started developing apps. You're in. Milwaukee, if, if I remember correctly, right? Yes. You started developing apps with the Milwaukee Symphony, isn't that right?
2: Well, we didn't develop apps. What my function was with the Milwaukee Symphony Orchestra was to develop community relations. And so what we did was, it's, it's funny, actually, it has a similar genesis to the Daily Muse in that it involved me being a little bit pretentious or precocious in some ways. I used to love going to classical symphony orchestra concerts. And But they were pretty expensive. And so so a way that I could do it without having to pay the ticket was to usher at the performances. And so I began to usher and then I met a few of the personnel who worked there. And I realized that they didn't understand the demographic of my age group, which makes sense. It makes sense. But I realized an opportunity there. And so I wrote a pretty lengthy business plan when I was in early high school. And I asked to meet with one of the administrators of the Milwaukee Symphony Orchestra to present my ideas, which would hopefully foster a tighter connection between their institution and my demographic. And they graciously accepted. And I gave a little presentation and then they agreed to let me come on as an intern. And so in that experience, I really learned, you know, what their values were, how important it is to foster culture and communities and so, yeah, we put on really cool performances, and it was a great experience.
1: That's fantastic. And I have to say, uh, since you, you've described that, you know, I'm going to put a, a huge burden on you right now. Because you're, if you don't mind disclosing how old you are right now? 21. You're 21 years old. Oh, oh God. You know, all right. I'm working hard. I'm working hard. Elena, I forgive you um yeah uh but anyway the um i forgot yes that, that is. is that is fantastic if if i uh, it's you know, amazing well oh you and know. depressing and but also strangely well, inspiring it, but it, it is wonderful now now <laughs> let me ask you because this is obviously something that james like you know james published this magnificent book called playlist which is absolutely beautiful and again you know after you've finished buying instrumental get playlist it's a great book and it's a great way of introducing classical music to people of all ages who just don't know it or are intimidated by it but let me ask you because you have friends i know who probably would never think about attending a classical music concert would never necessarily you know when they go to spotify choose you know one of the classical music selections What are the obstacles? You know, I mean, for me, it's just music, but you either like it or you don't. It's it's a values-free experience. It doesn't really represent any social concept, any social class, any set of values, although in a lot of popular media, it's often presented as something pretty sinister or something very snooty and elitist. So that's a bit of a problem. But what is the the essence of the barrier from your point of view?
2: I believe that it lies in effort and also the paucity of the current state of people. I think classical music by nature is not discursive, it's ineffable, and it is largely without words, or at least instrumental classical music is. And that is in very stark contrast to pop music right now, which is happy songs are in major keys Sad songs are in minor keys. They they guide you by the hand through the emotional experience. And with classical music, I think it necessitates a level of emotional maturity, but also emotional effort to connect the human experience with the piece itself. And so, I think that is an incredible barrier to entry for people who who have been like peppered with constant um, distractions and and. Basically, media and entertainment that cuts to the heart of an emotion, but in a very superficial way. And classical music, it doesn't cut right to the emotion. Sometimes it dances around it. You have to follow it on the journey um, and really invest in it and put out the other distractions in your life to get something from it. And that is a that's a tall order for a lot of people in, nowadays. So I think that's probably the biggest barrier.
1: I can only speak to my own personal experience, but for example. There are many classical music pieces that are quite long and we're used to instant gratification. You know, the pieces of classical music that are about the length of a pop song, there are many of them, but they're usually described as miniatures. And they can be anything from more developed pieces, can be, you know, multiple pieces put together, we call them movements. And a, you know, an, an extended work like a symphony can be upwards of an hour to 90 minutes. So that requires some commitment and patience. So it takes longer, but to my way of thinking, it also goes deeper. And I don't know how in the current environment of instant gratifications you can get around it, except to give people the values-free experience from an early enough age that there at least isn't a social peer group or commercial marketing pressure on kids to socialize towards a certain kind of music as a way of fitting into a peer group. I saw this in in South America visiting the teaching centers of El Sistema, where kids study mostly but not exclusively classical music for four hours a day, six days a week after school. And those kids start at the age of, you know, in some cases when they're toddlers doing little rhythm exercises with their parents and then playing on papier-mâché violins when they're, you know, three and four years old. And the idea that that music would somehow be alien to their experience is just inconceivable to them because they're exposed to it just as another form of musical experience along with, you know, whatever the popular music is that they'll hear on the radio at a time when there isn't glossy magazine ads saying, you know, if you want to be a member of our group, you have to listen to this or that or, or the other. So I don't know how, I mean, it's an uphill battle because there's obviously huge commercial interest in promoting the musical status quo. Sometimes it feels like we're, we're the Davids and the commercial musical world is Goliath. But I have to say, Elena, and I do not mean to, to go on for so long, that knowing that there are people 21 years old like you who kind of have that experience and are prepared to communicate it to your, to your friends, that's very encouraging. Thank you. Look, Look, look at Elena, folks. It didn't do her any harm. (laughs) She's pretty cool.
0: My experience is certainly with the kids I've performed in front of and I've met is that the immense majority of them are more open-minded and more respectful of classical music than the normal symphony audience that I perform. Really, a hundred times more. It's not; They don't have any issues about snobbery or it's just... Simply, they don't have access to it. It's just not there in their daily lives. And that's nothing to
1: do with them. So that's what needs to change. I mean, if you can take the the social status aspect out of it, you know, I mean, has everyone here seen the movie Tar?
2: No. Oh, okay. I
1: I resisted seeing it for a long time. And I, I have to say that if you're into classical music, whoever did that either knows their classical music very, very well. Uh, from a fairly inside perspective or did some incredible research, but it certainly shows the, what I would call the social status side of classical music, which I think is its greatest enemy in a very prominent way. It opens with a New Yorker talk with this extraordinary conductor. And it, it really takes until the end of the film that you, you get back to why the music is so powerful uh, when you strip away all those social trappings from it in a, really a very revelatory moment. It's, uh, it's a remarkable film. It, it may upset you, though, uh, in some ways.
2: Well, I think it, it hits home the idea that in order to enjoy classical music, you don't need money, you don't need an education, really. You don't need social status. You just need a heart and a soul.
1: Well said. Well Amen. said. Well, that seems like a very good place to uh to to wrap our episode i i can't thank you guys enough james of course it's always a pleasure I, oh i do have one last question when are you coming back to canada we miss you i miss you too man i miss toronto and i miss the lovely people and the
0: food and don't really miss the cold we'll um, we'll, we'll bring you in but... in in spring or summertime next time when it's it's Anytime, man. I got a, I got a date at Colonel Hall again. I would love to.
1: Absolutely. And of course, all the people who appreciate the spirit of Glenn Gould appreciate what you've done and all the, the lovely things that you've said to help keep his spirit alive. And that's, that's important to us too. Very good. Thank you, all Brian. Right. And thank you for this. It's been lovely. Thank you, James. Thank you, Elena. Thank you so much for having me. All right. And everyone, you get out there and, and get to the app store and get The Daily Muse, start using it. You'll be feeling the better for it within hours, if not days. The Glenn
0: Gould Foundation is a registered Canadian charity, and we rely on the support of arts lovers like you to continue bringing inspiring stories to life, please consider giving by visiting our website, glengould.ca. And if you're interested in keeping up with the Gould Standard podcast and more work from the Foundation, be sure to follow us across social media on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at the Glenn Gould Foundation.